Hello, and welcome to Close Talking. Today, Connor and I talk about Fourth of July at Santa Inez by John Haynes. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on the latest in Close Talking news. Welcome to another episode of Close Talking with me, Jack Rossiter-Munley. And I, Connor McNamara-Strat. We are two men with six names and one love of poetry. Uh, the format of the show is that we read the poem, then we talk about the poem, and then we read the poem again. You get to hear it twice, and in the middle, Connor and I discuss our thoughts and feelings about the poem. So this is a poem that I selected. It is called Fourth of July at Santa Inez by John Haynes, and a little bit of background on him. He was born in 1924 and passed away in 2011 and was mainly known for his nature poetry, which is something that I think we'll see some of in this poem, uh, and actually is mainly associated with the Northwest. He was a homesteader in Alaska, which is where he got a lot of inspiration, doing a lot of hunting and fishing and trapping to support his homesteader life. He originally was going to be a painter up there. As he tells it, when his paints froze, he turned to poetry. So whether that's true, whether that's true or not, it makes for a great story and that's does line up with the timeline of his life. So uh, quickly, before we get into the poem as well, Santa Inez is, for those who don't know, in pretty far south California, uh, sort of vineyard country. So not in his natural habitat, Mr. Mr. Uh, Haynes. <laughs> and I think dealing with subject matter that is not really his natural subject matter, not to put too fine a pun on it, but he's mainly known as sort of a more ecologically and naturally inclined poem, and this is sort of a human poem. But we'll get right into it, and you can decide what you think for yourself. Fourth of July at Santa Inez. One. Under the makeshift arbor of leaves, a hot wind blowing smoke and laughter. Music out of the renegade west, too harsh and loud. Many dark faces moved among the sweating whites. Two. Wandering apart from the others, I found an old Indian seated alone on a bench in the flickering shade. He was holding a dented bucket, three crayfish lifting themselves from the muddy water, stirred and scraped against the greasy metal. Three. The old man stared from his wrinkled darkness across the celebration, unblinking, as one might see in the hooded sleep of turtles. A smile out of the ages of gold and carbon flashed upon his face and vanished, called away by the sound and the glare around him, by the lost voice of a child piercing that thronged solitude. Four. The afternoon gathered distance and depth, divided in the shadows that broke and moved upon us. Slowly, too slowly, as if returned from a long and difficult journey, the old man lifted his bucket and walked away into the sunlit crowd. So this is a very interesting poem. To me, I picked it because 
there were deep resonances within it that struck out almost immediately. And I think that that's what Haynes was going for um, in that he's dealing with really evocative settings and themes in that he's setting this on the 4th of July, which already there's going to be a lot that goes along with that. When you come across a song called Independence Day, or when you come across what to a slave is the 4th of July in, uh, I think the actual name of the speech is uh, the meaning of 4th of July to the Negro that Frederick Douglass gave. You know that someone is digging into deep American mythology in the sense of the stories we tell ourselves about the country. And then the setting and the callouts that he gives to the West or to Indians or to just being in the space of Santa Inez also evokes deep American resonances of space and of history. So that sort of the way that that's weaved into the poem stuck out to me very quickly, but I'm sort of curious what you took away from it on first reading. Yeah, it was very interesting. So I like that you bring up the 4th of July because it's, it's kind of like this very intimate moment within this sort of raucous celebration. Um, there's music out of the renegade West and uh, there's um, the celebration and, and all this big crowd, people are sweating. There's sort of all this action, presumably, that's happening. And yet the progression of the poem, basically the plot is I found this guy and then he was old and then he smiled at me for one second and then he left. And then the poem ends. And um, that's all that happens. And, and one thing that was especially, I liked how it was broken into four sections. So it kind of has this very deliberate like almost like a like a short story or like a novel like plot structure like there's this the first section under the makeshift arbor of leaves music out of the west too harsh and loud there's this exposition we're setting the scene etc here i am then there's kind of the initial encounter which has maybe our rising action or whatever even though the action is an overstatement, but wandering apart from the others, I found an old Indian sitting alone. Uh, and so here's the moment of, of the encounter. And that's like where, what's gonna happen with this. Uh, and then section three, he smiles basically. And there we have our climactic moment. <laughs> um, a smile out of the ages of gold and carbon flashed upon his face and vanished. Um, and then finally, in the fourth section, we have the um, the sort of resolution, slowly, too slowly, as if returned from a difficult journey, the old man walked away into the crowd. Um, and so it was very it was very interesting in that I think the the deliberate sort of section headers and the big crowd seem to set up this poem as a sort of epic or like there's a there's a grandness maybe that I might expect when I'm reading it I think and and also in in a lot of the language too um I don't know under the makeshift arbor of leaves kind of arbor is a 
the diction of that word has, I don't know, older and so more in some ways, I don't know, sacred connotations or something. Um, but at the same time, all that happens is a smile. There's no conversation. The speaker doesn't say anything. And so that tension was what struck me initially. And I think that's the tension that he's really going for. And sort yeah. of, I think the larger idea in this poem is that this very small human interaction is not necessarily weighed down by intense history, but that that interaction itself has a grandeur to it because of what surrounds it. You're exactly right. It's mythic language. I mean, an age of gold and carbon. I mean, that sounds like the opening crawl of Star Wars or the opening of any of a fairy tale. I mean, that's just big language. Yeah. Well, I was just wondering what you think um, he's trying to do with that history. Because there's one way that I felt like I could read this. Um, it seemed possible that a lot of the poetic import stems from the fact that the encounter is with someone who's, you know, an American Indian, and that maybe there's like this like mythical fetishization of like a native person that he's drawing on, very prevalent in a lot of literature and movies where there's like someone appears, does nothing that in their character that would suggest they're wise or anything, but ver by virtue of the fact that they're an American Indian or whatever, we, because we're messed up, sort of imbue that person with this wisdom or whatever. And so I was wondering if, how you felt that Haynes was engaging with, with these histories. That's part of what fascinated me about this poem because I think that is a very valid reading of it. Just when you take the text, I think that reading is unquestionably there. The one that I have of it, and I don't know anything about Haynes himself, and I don't know exactly what his intentions were with this poem, but what I take is something a little deeper and sadder, which if you look at it, I think the first line indicates something about Haynes as an individual, which is that his focus is on nature because he's talking about the leaves. But it also sets up this interesting interplay between dark and light that runs through the entire poem. And you start off under the makeshift arbor of leaves. So he's orienting us to the natural world. A hot wind blowing smoke and laughter. Music out of the renegade west. You know, setting the scene. But it's under an arbor of leaves. And the first thing that that puts in my head is that this is taking place, and he confirms it in the first stanza at the end of it, that it's in the shade. There is flickering shade flashes of light and dark coming in and out is how he has set us up. And the interplay of dark and light is so much the story of race in America, which I think is what he's getting at. And this idea of light and dark coming in and out of focus resonates throughout the rest of the poem. So you have the flickering shade, you have darkness across the celebration, you have gold, which is bright and shines, you have carbon, gunpowder, smoke, darkness, fog of war, flashed upon his face. That's a muzzle flash. That's flashing of ammunition. It's any number of stories of the conflicts that have gone on between white people and native people. 
further on, divided in the shadows that broke and moved upon him. Again, you have shadow, which can't exist without light. So it's not just darkness, but it's a shadow that is created when there is light so that it may be cast. And then when he gets up, this man, who embodies all of these different histories in the poem, disappears into the sunlit crowd. The crowd of white people who are celebrating, who have dark people moving in and out of them, who I think we're meant to believe are some sort of wait staff at a fancy mixer. That's the kind of party that I envision. That you have music from the Renegade West is either like a mariachi band that's moving through the crowd, or you have like Mexican music, because this area is very close to the Mexican border. That's, you know, it's harsh and loud and it's boisterous, but it's also music that is there to serve the white people who are having a celebration. And you have this very human moment where he separates himself from that loud sunlit crowd, goes into this dark and light space with the arbor of trees, goes further into it where he finds this guy sitting in the flickering shade, has this moment where the two of them recognize something human in each other. And then this man and all that he could mean is completely subsumed in that raucous crowd that we have already been shown isn't interested in the complex history that he embodies or the stories he might tell if we get more than a smile from him. Damn. Yeah. I think that's a good, that's a very interesting reading. Um, as I, as I said, I want to be perfectly clear. I don't think that's the only reading. It may yeah. not be the intended reading. And I think that what you bring up is very valuable and valid and important, particularly when looking at this poem written in the 1970s by he's a poet. So probably liberal, but I don't <laughs> I don't uh, know for sure, but he's like an Alaskan homesteader poet. So his thoughts on race, I do not know. The advancement of those thoughts, I do not know. My sense is that he is playing with these themes and ideas on a, a deeper and sadder level. I mean, it, it definitely, I would be interested to see, like if this was, I assume, published in a collection, what the other uh, surrounding poems are, especially if you know, he's mostly writing about, you know, like if, or, or Alaska or the Northwest, like maybe there, I would, I would be interested to see if there's a series of um, ones that are in California or Santa Inez or something. Um, and, and that might give more insight. Cause one, one thing that's interesting too, is in part the strength, but also the potential difficulty of the poem is the history that we're referring to is is sort of very poetically put in the poem. So like you are reading, which I think is a totally, I, I appreciate that this reading of, of smile out of the ages of gold and carbon flashed upon his face and vanished that having the, the gunshots, the muzzles, all that stuff. Um, but at the same time, it's the ages of gold and carbon. He's not saying a smile you know, from this time when there was this war that killed these people in this specific event. So he, he avoids, which a lot of poems do, sort of like the specific historicization while re referring to it. That makes it resonate, perhaps, and endure longer, perhaps, than it might otherwise. But at the same time, leaves it unclear what, where exactly sort of meaning is being derived. I think that stanza, the second of number three, is particularly interesting. And it really is yeah. the moment that this 
poem is interested in, A Smile Out of the Ages of Golden Carbon, because as you noted, in just a structural analysis of this piece, that's our major climax. Our inciting incident is that the party is too crazy and this guy doesn't like it and he leaves it. And he heads out into the wilderness and he goes out and he has an encounter and then he returns, you know, possibly changed, whatever. Uh, but the the climax of that move is this. It's this smile. And I think it's very interesting to say a smile out of the ages of golden carbon flashed upon his face and vanished. Because if I'm trying to visualize this scene, I see this guy sitting underneath of a tree. Light is coming in and out. And as much as his smile flashes across his face, so does the light that flashes across his face that illuminates him. And that was interesting to me because the first thing it made me think of, particularly in the context of a 4th of July poem, is the Star Spangled Banner. That song, when you actually look at the words, if you think about the words, it says, and the rocket's red glare, bombs bursting in air, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. That's rockets and bombs going off, offering spots of illumination through the night that allowed the writer to continue to see the American flag flying over a fort. It is literally flashes of light showing what's going on. And to me, what's going on in this line or the reading that I bring to it with that context is just that this is that idea thrown out into a new context. And I think the flashes, the carbon, all of that puts me in the space of munitions and puts me into the same realm. Yeah, no, I like that. And uh, that that whole stanza, I think, is probably one of my favorite, I think. So a smile out of the ages of gold and carbon flashed upon his face and vanished, called away by the sound and the glare around him, by the voice, lost voice of a child piercing that throng solitude. So one thing I love is A, that there's the line break after flashed upon his face, line break and vanished. Um, Just because that feels like a small lingering, like if and vanished was on the same line, we would have less of the smile. And so it's important to have the flash be there, but also be immediately followed on the next line by the vanishing. Um, And then I also love that last line, piercing that thronged solitude, um, because that that encapsulates a lot of the atmosphere that is what this poem is getting at, is that the solitude within this throng of people, and then within that, there's this piercing, which which is the light of insight or a moment of connection or something like that. Um, and then I like that the it's a lost voice of a child. That was very striking for some reason, in part because it figured the American Indian guy as someone who is connected to a community or people around and is not just sort of like this isolated person sitting here solely for the benefit of the speaker who needs to have a revelation. Yeah, It turns it from just being a device to create a poem to making you think that this is a real guy who is interacting with the world around him and that our writer 
likely actually experienced, and he isn't just making this up so that he has a cool poem. He actually had this sort of poetic experience with a human being. And it's about that he had a human moment with someone because neither one of them really wanted to be in the big loud party. They both were looking for a moment outside of it. And they were both in that, at the end of it, when the smile is called away, they're both sort of called back into it. It's another moment of connection for them that doesn't get realized in the same way. It's not the same as glancing up and smiling at someone, but you can see them both turning their heads back towards the party when this child cries out. I should have done a proper uh, metric analysis, but um, it is worth noting that it, it, the lines are very consistent uh, line length. I don't know how important this is, but everything under the makeshift arbor of leaves, a hot wind blowing smoke and laughter. It feels like it's a kind of like a five stress line or something. Um, and that continues pretty much throughout. So it's, there's not, there's not like any sudden short lines or sudden long lines, which does help, I think, the cadence of the piece. And it helps it feel overall like a story because it is yeah. essentially a very short, evocatively told story. It's a strict right. narrative about one little happening that has caused him to reflect on you know where he happened to be on the 4th of July, which in the very strictest sense, as he sets us up, as I said, with this light and dark interplay that goes on throughout the poem, that is under this arbor of leaves where the entire thing takes place, where he is in Southern California, there's Native American populations, there's Mexican populations, there's white populations. It is a very racially, ethnically, culturally mixed area of the country where he is celebrating the 4th of July, which there is a long history of writers, white and non-white, problematizing the idea of that as the American Independence Day. Frederick Douglass is probably the most famous but it is a day that exists to celebrate a very specific kind of person's independence. And I think that's where the jumping off point for this poem comes from. And I think what got Haynes contemplating that more explicitly and deciding to sit down and write a poem about the experience is this moment he had. But what it expanded to for him is a contemplation of him being in that place on the 4th of July, which I think is where that title comes from because it's not just you know meeting with a native american on the fourth of july or fourth of july smile or something like that i think a title like that might lend itself more to the sort of more problematic reading totally valid reading of the poem it is there in the text but the fact that he says fourth of july at santa inez that poem title puts us to some extent in the contested space of the first couple of lines that described this party that is not explicitly stated, but hints at this uncomfortable, too harsh and loud, many dark faces moved among the sweating whites. You get a sense of the white people dancing to the music while these purposeful servers move between them, or at least that's the image that I sort of conjure up with those lines. And I think that it's the 4th of July, this signal of independence for white male voters at Santa Inez, this more, fluid contested space that's where i think the contemplation comes in for him and this moment he had is what sort of crystallized that 
incongruity or dissonance for him. No, I like that reading. Um, a, you're totally right about the title. That is like a very that is a very good reading of how that title is working. It's difficult to one challenge that I think in in your in your if we like which I am convinced by, but like if we adopt your reading, one way that this poem is working very successfully is its political implications are framed mostly just by the title and like a few moments. And one thing that more like overtly political poems that one of the problems they can face is everything else that happens is sort of subsumed in the political point. And so one thing that this title allows is to have a sort of real narrative that's like has political implications, but is also just an encounter between one person and another person. And also is like in this very specific uh, landscape or setting. Um, and so rather than sort of like, if it was like the title as a horrible example was just like, fuck the 4th of the July and fuck American independence. And then the poem happened. You would just read everything as like a symbol for just fuck, you know, fucking the 4th of July, basically. Um, I can't wait for you to run for office and <laughs> dig this up for an opposition ad. I, there's going to be an oppo research intern who just runs in and is like, you won't believe what I found. <laughs> He's never going to get elected. He Does said fuck the 4th of July. And now it can happen to me too. Does Connor Stratton, is he interested in 4th of July fucking? Does he wish to copulate with the calendar? <laughs> oh, brother. That would be a disaster. But, okay, last little thing. I do really love this last line in the last stanza. The first line of the last stanza, slowly, too slowly, as if returned from a long and difficult journey. The slowly, too slowly is a very small moment that I really appreciate. Partly it's just describing, you know, we get the sense of the age of this person um, who's rising, it's taking a long time, but the, the too slowly is very like, why is it too slowly? There's a, there's a judgment there that's very subtle. And it gives you a sense of, I don't know, I don't even know what it suggests, but I just, the fact that the speaker is having an opinion on how fast this guy's getting up, it's like too slow, like it makes, it it disturbs him um, in some way. It unsettles him that to it's me, this slow. To me, I think that was, I think two things were going on there. One is that the journey we've just gone on with Haynes as the person telling us the story is writing in a lot of Native American history, problematic history. And to me, it seems a little bit like Haynes is wondering if this is what he was thinking about looking at this party of white people on the 4th of July. And the other part is just that neither one of them, independent of all that history, really wanted to be in that loud group of people. And he's sort of reluctant, maybe pulling himself out of his contemplation of this, and just in general, reluctant to go back. And we, in fact, don't see our narrator go back into the party. 
we have we assume that he does probably shortly thereafter, but we are led to believe that neither he nor this guy want to go back in and they're both choosing to separate out. And so slowly, too slowly is both the reluctance to rejoin and we're given the possible idea that he is pulling himself out of a deep contemplation, potentially of the same sort of issues that our narrator has been thinking about as well. Because if we look at this interaction from the old man's side of it, this white guy walked over, he looked up at him, he smiled. Maybe he's thinking about all of this, you know, age of golden carbon from the other side. Should we uh, read it again? You got anything more? No, I think that's about it. I, this poem continues to, to make me wonder because there is absolutely, as we've said a couple of times, there is that opposite reading. And I do wonder if that's maybe a more accurate reading, but we will leave that up to you, our listeners, to decide. Hey. And I will read it again. Fourth of July at Santa Inez. One. Under the makeshift arbor of leaves, a hot wind blowing smoke and laughter. Music out of the renegade west, too harsh and loud. Many dark faces moved among the sweating whites. Two. Wandering apart from the others, I found an old Indian seated alone on a bench in the flickering shade. He was holding a dented bucket, three crayfish lifting themselves from the muddy water, stirred and scraped against the greasy metal. Three, the old man stared from his wrinkled darkness across the celebration, unblinking, as one might see in the hooded sleep of turtles. A smile out of the ages of gold and carbon flashed upon his face and vanished, called away by the sound and the glare around him, by the lost voice of a child piercing that thronged solitude. Four, the afternoon gathered distance and depth, divided in the shadows that broke and moved upon us. Slowly, too slowly, as if returned from a long and difficult journey, the old man lifted his bucket and walked away into the sunlit crowd. That does it for this episode of Close Talking. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to stay up to date on the latest Close Talking news or find old episodes, be sure to check out iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, where you can subscribe to Close Talking. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash close talking or on Twitter at Jack Rossiter Munn for me, at Hot Sauce Boxed for Connor, and at Close Talking for the show. If you have thoughts on this conversation, different readings of this poem, or any of the other poems we've discussed, or if you have suggestions for poems that you'd like us to talk about in the future, please send us an email at close talking poetry at gmail.com.